Matthew 5, 17-26 Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, darling. We'll do uh, keep that passage open because I'll be referring to uh, verses in that passage. So it'd be really helpful if you've got that before you. But let's just pray, shall we? Let's pray that God will speak to us through his word. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you that your words that you spoke in your human ministry were recorded accurately by the gospel writers, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so we pray that as you are with us now, Lord, as our teacher, and as your spirit is present, please would these words go to each of our hearts, that we might live for you and enter heaven. Amen. We are all murderers. We are all murderers. Now, before you think that you know, the sort of sun has slightly got to me and I'm just becoming a little bit mad, or that I'm becoming rather negative, I think unless we have that perspective, we will lack compassion. Without the perspective that we are all murderers, we will lack compassion. Uh, of course, I'm not suggesting that we have all shot somebody or stabbed or poisoned someone, but rather that according to the Lord Jesus, according to God's law, each and every one of us break the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And of course, the first giving of the law of God, as we've been seeing, it was written by the finger of God on tablets of stone at the top of Mount Sinai. The law revealed to Moses to enable the Israelites to relate to God 
in a way that would lead to their blessing. And that law was, in its essence, about not killing people. As we've just had read, Jesus Christ clearly teaches that the fulfillment of this law for his people goes way deeper. Look with me at verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. So he's quoting from Exodus 20. And then with the authority of the Messiah, the Son of God, he says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to brother or sister Raka is answerable to the court, and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Is Jesus raising the standard of this commandment to such an impossibly high level that no one keeps it? Yes. Because that, according to the Son of God, is the heart of the sixth commandment. Let's begin to unpack this because I, I don't think what Jesus is saying here is that all anger is wrong. We, we know that because of what the rest of the Bible says. But he is saying when someone is speaking in such a way out of a heart mastered by anger that they are guilty of murder. They're sinning in such a way that hell will be deserved. This is difficult for us to grapple with. Jesus is not saying that all anger is wrong because Jesus himself expressed anger towards the religious teachers of his day who demanded that he kept their laws on the Sabbath. We saw that a couple of weeks ago with anger and distress. He responded to their petty law-keeping. He turned over the moneylenders in what he proclaimed should have been a house of prayer in the temple. And Christians are commanded to be angry in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. Be angry and sin not. So there is such a thing as righteous anger, anger at injustice, uh, anger at abuse, at bullying, at war, at corruption. That kind of anger is right, and Jesus modeled it for us. But the Lord Jesus is saying that there is a kind of anger that is murder. There is a kind of anger expressed in speech which will rightly lead not only to court proceedings, but to hell. Why? Well, first point this morning. We are all murderers because we dishonor the image of God in people. We're all murderers because we dishonor the image of God that is in each and every single human being. We might picture this uh, a bit like a mirror or a windscreen. You know when you're sort of walking down the street and you see uh, just glass on the ground, or I don't know if anybody's had a windscreen break on them. What, what tends to happen is one little break and the whole thing shatters and then it collapses in. Or you, you break a mirror and the whole thing changes, doesn't it? You can't just sort of break a little bit of the mirror. That's what God's law is like. And when we're sinfully angry with someone, 
at that point, we're breaking the image of God in them. We're dishonoring the image of God in that person. We may not shoot people, but we engage in character assassination. We may not poison people, but we do gossip about people to poison their reputation. We may not stab people, but we stick the knife in far more subtly. We're all murderers. You're still not convinced, are you? <laughs> it's difficult for me to be convinced of this, but we, we must, because it's what Scripture teaches. Keep a finger in Matthew 5, and let's just flip forward to James, the Lord's brother, writing on this. James uh, chapter 4, which... Um, when we get to, if somebody could, uh, one, two, one, five. One, two, here's the sort of mirror or shattered windscreen image. Chapter four, verse 11. He's writing to Christians, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Why? Why not say anything about a fellow Christian which is untrue? Well, anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. And when you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? When we slander somebody else, when we speak untruths about somebody else, what are we doing? We're playing God. We're playing the lawgiver and judge. The whole mirror shatters at that point because of the first commandment. You shall have no other God before me. We can't be God. There is only one. And then James chapter 3 verse 9. If, if this doesn't convince you, I'm not sure what will. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Back to Matthew. So what James is saying is, if we speak against others, we are disrespecting, dishonor the image of God in them. We are playing God. And the images that James has used, sorry, I should probably have kept the, the page open. The images he uses of this lack of control of our tongue is like a spark, a fire that is unleashed, that burns to hell. See, we may praise him each day in our quiet times or singing Christian music, but harbor bitter resentment, speaking against other people under our breath. We may leave here having praised our God and Father, and then somebody cuts us up on the way out, and out comes some pretty fruity language, if you're me. <laughs> I mean, not, not too bad. Depends who else is in the car. Maybe secretly in our hearts, we are rehearsing ways in which other people have hurt us. People in church, our families, our colleagues, and we end up talking about them. 
in ways which slaughter them. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? No. So in what areas of our lives are we speaking like this? Maybe colleagues at work, maybe Christians who have hurt us or disappointed us, maybe members of our own family have hurt us. Maybe we're just investigating the Christian life and we think, I'm a good person, at least I'm not a murderer. Actually, we all are. According to Jesus' words, we all deserve hell. Now, you may say, oh, John, but you're just sending us on a guilt trip. I knew it. I'd come to church and I'd just be made to feel really, really guilty. That's the whole point of church, isn't it? Just being made to feel really, really guilty. No, no. Because remember the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is to help us to give up on ourselves and our way of doing righteousness and thinking that we are fine and trust Jesus, who is the only one who has kept the law, who can forgive us and give us his righteousness, which is perfect. See, God's law shows us our need of Christ and his forgiveness, his breathtaking obedience, which we'll see in a moment, and clothe us with his righteousness. So as we've just been singing, even though we don't do what we should do, we are loved by God because we trust in who Jesus is and what he's done. Sometimes we think that actually we're not, we're not like this until something happens in our lives that makes it painfully obvious that we are like this. It's a bit like when you go canoeing and you get a bit too close uh, to, to, the, to the bank and, and the pond or the river looks lovely and clear and pure but then as you put the paddle in it sort of stirs up all that horrible anoxic black stinky mud at the bottom of the pond or the river. A bit like that there are circumstances in our lives which show what really is in our hearts, deep down, and it's pretty foul, is it not? We manage to say the most horrible things to the people closest to us, don't we? Or is that just me? <laughs> ask Mim, or you know, ask me about Mim. If we think our hearts are free from the corruption of murder, Jesus Christ would disagree. Because he says in, Matthew, uh, in Mark 7, out of the heart comes all kinds of evil thoughts and lewdness and lust and murder. Given the right circumstances, it will come out. It's not the case that some people, some identities are innocent victims and other identities are guilty. The whole of humanity is guilty on this one. This is not so we can wallow in it, but like an ECG reveals our heart problem so we can get treatment, so we can get the cure, so we can be given life. And the heroes of the Bible, I think, were obviously particularly chosen by God to show that he can rescue people who are murderers. People like Moses and David and Paul. They were redeemed from it, so we can be too. We're all murderers because we dishonor the image of God in people. But second, and more briefly, the Lord Jesus was murdered so that murderers like us can be forgiven. 
just think about the perfection of Jesus Christ. In him we see the perfect man, fully God, fully man, keeping the law of God perfectly, constantly. He, he claimed that every word that came out of his mouth was what his father wanted. Not just the exact word, but the intonation which he used, which is so often reveals the nature of our hearts, doesn't it? Knowing that he will be betrayed by Judas to a murderous mob, his concern is not for himself, but for Judas. And he warns him to the end. Whilst being arrested by an armed guard in response to Peter defending him with a sword and cutting off Malchus's ear, he reaches out his hand and heals that man's ear immediately. All who use the sword will die by the sword. As Jesus stands trial before a kangaroo court, there is no sense in which he is playing along with injustice, is there? He's silent so that the one thing that he wants to confess is made clear. The high priest says, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say. Yet I tell you the truth. You will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. I will be judging you in the future. He warns them, even as he's been condemned deceitfully and then he's slapped in the face by one of the officials and he says if I spoke the truth why did you slap me before Pilate he says everyone on the side of truth listens to me and then as he is being crucified nails being pummeled through arms wrists and ankles he prays out loud father forgive them they do not know what they are doing. And whilst he is brutally tortured to death, Jesus never once dishonored the image of God in those who were causing him so much pain. He continues to love them perfectly. He warns, he heals, he prays and dies for them. Is that not stunning obedience? Keeping the law of God There was never once when Jesus thought that Roman soldier, that pagan ruler, that corrupt religious official does not deserve my honor, respect, and love because they are the image of God, of my God and Father of Jesus, the true image of God. I find this amazing because I don't know if you're anything like me, but I kind of excuse myself, even mentally murdering people in my own mind because they have harmed me in some way. I mean, I, I try not to be bitter, <laughs> but it's difficult to escape, is it not? How would it be if all power of all sovereignty was in your hand, if you could call down 12 legions of angels to destroy anybody who was hurting you? And still, Jesus loves people to death. He's willing to be tortured to death and pray for them and love them and heal them. 
That is what this law means. You shall not murder. It, it's way beyond us, is it not? Is, is it beyond you? Is it beyond me? And yet Jesus did that so he could swap places with us. I was trying to find some of the uh, stories of identical twins who, who swap places. Um, uh, uh, perhaps one of you can find this for me. The, the, there's a story of identical twins in, in Italy and one is convicted of murder and is about to be executed, but you can guess what happens. The innocent identical twin takes the place and is executed in place of his brother. And that just goes some way of reminding us of what Jesus has done. He was innocent. He kept the law, this law, in perfection. And yet he endured the wrath, the hell that we deserve so that we can be forgiven and given his perfect law. Why would we go anywhere else than Jesus' righteousness? Why would we trust in our righteousness when his has been given to us? We're clothed in him. And so for those of us, and I know, and I struggle with this, those of us who feel overly guilty, we don't feel guilty enough because we should be trusting only Jesus' righteousness, not our righteousness, but his I forgot what my second point was now because I'm put it here. The Lord Jesus was murdered so that murderers like us can be forgiven. Now that is very much looking at the two uses of the law. Uh, the, the law which is to lead us to Christ and to help us to trust in Christ and then to, to increasingly become more like Christ as we seek to live out obedience to this law in our speech and our thought life because that's what leads on to what we do in life. Uh, but I, I want to... And I, I'm sorry that in many ways this is going to be rather superficial. Um, but I think it's important for us to then think about the, the civil use of the law. So honour all those made in the image of God. What does that mean? This is our third point. Guard life and speak to edify. Guard life and speak to edify. In other words, a scriptural understanding of how we avoid committing murder is recognizing the image of God in all other human beings. And as we approach our culture, there's a couple of areas where we need to guard life. But we need to approach this with compassion and understanding, knowing that we are all murderers. That there's not just some really, really bad people out there who are murderers. You know, people like Putin or the other guy who's just stopped the civil war, whatever. But we're all murderers, and we all need Jesus to help us stop being murderers. Guard life, two areas, the unborn child and the end of life. And I know these are highly emotive and complex issues. I can't hope to deal with them in 10 minutes. But... I, I want us to just think about the foundation which informs these two particular areas. And it's the image of God. And the church has been unclear about the image of God for about three centuries. So let's just try and make sure that we are not part of the problem going forward. Um, let's look at Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. And there's much more on this on the Christian Institute website. 
but we are made in the image of God. So chapter 1, verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. What does it mean for us to be made in the image of God? Well, it means that we are to rule as human beings. We're given power by God over the created order, over the fish, the birds, the livestock. This is not given to the animals. You know, dolphins can count to three, but we can count a little bit further. Chimps can learn sign language of a kind, but they can't construct sentences. They can use tools to hunt for ants, but not to launch spacecraft. There is more evidence of our difference to the animals now than there ever has been. And yet, foolishly, people start to say, we're just animals. No, we're not. Our art, technology, science, music. And this isn't just our rationality, as Rene Descartes suggested. This was the wrong move. The image of God is expressed in our physicality. Herman Baving, the theologian, was very clear on this. Why is this important? Well, it doesn't mean that God is physical, but because God always planned that his son would be incarnate, the human body was suitable for the incarnation of the Son of God. Why is this important? I'll come on to it. Human bodies are part of the image of God. What makes us different to the animals? We walk uprightly, bipedally. We have opposable thumbs. No other animal can do that. Our ability to climb trees is rubbish compared to apes and gibbons. It, it went a long time ago, depending on what you think about evolution. But the opposable thumb means we can play music. We can write. We can throw things. Our facial musculature is unique in the range of emotion it's able to communicate. We're made for a relationship. And it's more than our brains and rationality. Why is this important? Well, the image of God is not just our minds. It's everything that makes us human, everything that enables us to rule. Minds, faces, hands, feet. What makes us human is everything about us, body and soul. A human fetus has all these things before it is a conscious rationality, does it not? A human life on a support machine has all these things even if it is not conscious. We would never say to somebody who is asleep, they are no longer human. A human being on a life support machine, someone suffering severe Alzheimer's, as all these things, or most of these things. So for example, uh, in the course that I did, one of the most remarkable things uh, of those who suffer severe Alzheimer's or memory loss, often music is the one thing that brings out the memory. They can sing. Can animals do that? So that's the first thing, rule. Secondly, responsibility. Because we've been given power to rule through language and knowledge and bipedal gape and, and, and gait and facial musculature and opposable thumbs, we are responsible for caring for the world. So God says to Adam in Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Human beings are given responsibility to care for creation. It makes no sense for one evolved species 
amongst the 99% who've already gone extinct to be responsible for all the others. Unless God has made us in his image to rule and to be responsible for his creation. I mean, we wouldn't go to a bonobo and ask why they rape and kill other people's, uh, other bonobos' infants or commit intertribal warfare. But we are more than justified in asking a human being why they do that. They are responsible beings. We are responsible. We're not just animals. However similar animals are to us in genetic, genetic terms, no other animal is responsible for global warming, is it? No other animal, however much methane they may pour out, are responsible for it. But we are because we're made in God's image. We rule and we have responsibility. And then finally, the image of God means we are created for relationships. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. To be made in God's image is not just to be different to the animals, to rule them and care for them, to, to be responsible for them, but to do so in relationships, specifically marriage. Jesus quotes from Genesis 2 and verse 24 as well. And the image of God, which is male and female, has within it the idea of physical fit. Lock and key, suitable. The Hebrew is very clear. Like unto his face. So the image of God is not something that is only, only found in male and only found in female. It's found in both, supremely, in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. But part of God's purpose in creating us in his image is making us for relationship, for union. The ultimate union between Christ and his church, as Ephesians puts it. And this is not to devalue those who are single because Jesus was single, or to devalue those who don't have children because Jesus never had any children. But nevertheless, the image of God is expressed in male and female and their bodies. Now, there's still work to do on this theologically, but why is this important? The image of God is not just rationality. It is physicality as well. This is how the early church thought of the image of God. It's how the, the church has drifted from it over the last 300 years. And many, many debates about abortion and assisted suicide uh, focus on rationality and consciousness and ignore the body. And so we need to be careful that we're not trying to argue against uh, abortion and assisted suicide on Gnostic grounds, i.e. that we're just feelings and thoughts rather than body. Now, I, I obviously don't have time to, to do justice, but I do need to say something about the, culture, uh, the cultural challenge of abortion and assisted suicide. And I think we just need to be very careful and compassionate in our response to the rise in abortion. It is not solely the responsibility of women, is it? Because for every situation in which a woman needs to make an agonizing choice, there is often an irresponsible man. Yet, since the first century, the Christian church, following the Hippocratic oath of a minority within Greco-Roman society, viewed abortion as sinful, always. Now, I, I, as I say, I'm not going into all the detail, but our ethic of 
guarding life is built on way more than Psalm 51, surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. If the image of God is our human bodies, and a fetus at nine weeks has all that is needed to be a fully functioning human being, bar some wiring, then we've, we've, we've got to be perhaps more resistant to the cultural movement that is happening. And we need to be resisting with compassion because we're all murderers. It's not like there's some really horrible, awful people out there who, who choose to have an abortion. We're all murderers. It must be an agonizing choice. But it does fit the category of murder. And if we're going to resist the likes of Steven Pinker, who argues from human consciousness to postpartum abortion, which is actually killing babies because actually they, don't, they have less consciousness than perhaps a chimpanzee or a dolphin, we must return to the image of God, including physicality. Now, much more could be said, and I'm sorry if that's raised things for people. Um, I'm, I'm planning at some point to have a particular talk on, on abortion, a particular talk on assisted suicide, a particular talk on genetic screening, um, but it will take me time to do it properly. If we're all murderers, we can be compassionate towards those who have had abortions and remind them that is not the unforgivable sin, just as murder in Moses' case and David's case and the Apostle Paul's case was not the unforgivable sin. Assisted suicide in two minutes. <laughs> we have to grapple with the power of modern medicine, and there's many here who will be much more knowledgeable than I am, and I'd love us to be starting a discussion about the, the, the particular difficulties in this area. Whereas in the past, the ability to sustain life, to resuscitate, to feed, to hydrate was minimal, we can now perform functions for the body which would be unthinkable even 20, 30 years ago. Artificial lungs, feeding hydration tubes, the need to grapple with the differences between instructions not to resuscitate and lethal injections or drinks needs to be grappled with. Not only are the reasons for assisted sewer becoming ever more dubious in countries such as the Netherlands, where otherwise healthy but depressed teenagers are being euthanized, our society seems to be teetering on the edge of embracing the contradiction in which doctors and other medical professionals who have sworn an oath to preserve life may be required to end life. It goes all the way back to the Hippocratic Oath. And it's particularly ironic, isn't it, because we live in an age where palliative care and the widespread acceptance of the ethics of double effect, the idea that if you relieve pain, that might have the additional effect of hastening death, well, that's enabled death to be more comfortable than ever more, uh, ever before in human history. A and as Christians, I think we need to recover something that has been emphasized in almost every age of the Christian church, except our own, which is the ars moriendi, the art of dying. The Puritans were into it, all the reformers, the, the evangelical revivals, how are we preparing to die well? How are we helping relatives to die well? 
Paul said to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's not Paul being morbid. It's always the case that for the Christian, trusting God through the dying process and meeting Christ the other side is gain. But we need to guard life. Um, just a couple of books. Um, John Wyatt, um, I, I've read his other books. I haven't yet read these, but I trust him as an author. Right to die, so euthanasia, sister's suicide, and end of life care. This is the Ars Moriendi, um, the Christian art of dying well. How, how do we prepare one another? We don't know when it's going to come, do we? Um, but we need to be prepared to die well in, in particularly the modern scene of medical intervention. Now, there's lots more I could say, and you'll be grateful that I'm not going to try. I'm just flagging up that these are areas we really need to grapple with. If We, we, we can't be simplistic and just anti-abortion and anti-euthanasia because we need to grapple with the problems that are causing these particular challenges. Uh, do visit the Christian Institute website. I'll, I'll give links on the church WhatsApp group. But then, very briefly and finally, we need to... We need to be overcoming our murderous tendencies, don't we? And we do that with what comes out of our mouths. And I'll just close here. If we're repentant of the murder that is in our hearts, that Jesus died to forgive, if we're repentant so that we're clothed with his righteousness and we're children of our Heavenly Father, we will want to speak like Jesus spoke. Whatever provocation. And he has given us his spirit. And so Paul can say in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Because that's how Jesus spoke. And in him, that's how we can. Let's just pray as we close. Lord, we are sorry for covering over what our hearts are like and hiding it from ourselves. But we praise you and thank you so much for Jesus, for what he was like, that he always perfectly kept your law, that he never murdered in action or in word. Forgive us, help us to trust in him and help us to be like him. Amen.